pray that you would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts that we might encounter you and be more Christ-like. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this has been quite a journey with the church in Corinth and with Paul as we reminded ourselves at the beginning of this journey Paul is in Ephesus and he's writing to the church in Corinth which he planted around about three or so years ago and then he's hearing all these reports and previously he'd heard reports of division and quarrels and jealousy and he tried to speak into that for them to get their act together and then here he's hearing more frustrations that um, as well that they appeared to be behaving like babies as we mentioned last week rather than mature followers of Christ and now he was getting reports of sexual immorality and that caused everyone outside of the church to recoil never mind those inside of the church some translations use the word incest that it was an act between um, Possibly the commentators say the stepmother and one of the children. And it seems that the church had got the wrong end of the stick. That their freedom in Christ wasn't meant that they were free to do whatever they wanted to do. But that they ought to have been some restraint and... and a call call for holiness. There was no sense of accountability. There was no sense of church discipline. There seemed to be no desire to grow in maturity as we looked at last week and we looked at the marks of maturity. If the church was to grow and mature to be more like Christ, then such behaviour needed to be confronted and not swept under the carpet so this morning as much as there's some horrible stuff in this passage that may call us to cause us to recoil and how could it possibly happen just remind yourselves he's writing here to the church not to the society around he's writing to a broken people to a fallen people who have been saved by grace And at the beginning of the letter, do you remember how gracious he was? Initially, before he went in there with the punches, initially he said that you have been sanctified and set apart for our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the church. And he was encouraging them before he then brought the challenges to their walk with God. And so he's challenging them on what the issues are. Sometimes it's easier to um, turn a blind eye. It's too difficult. It's too controversial. But Paul challenged the stuff that was going on in the body of Christ. And if you read through it and through to chapter 6 as well, it's not just about sexual immorality. Christians are not hung up just about sexual immorality. He talked about being greedy and covetous 
and jealousy and gossiping and slander. Those were other phrases he used as well. And he's saying, it's not God-like. It's not a good representation of the God we choose to worship and serve. And that when we invite God by the Holy Spirit into us, He does begin to change us, honestly, from the inside out. Often it's not a one-bang wallop, but it's a gentle change and wooing. Almost a day-by-day submission that that I might decrease as John the Baptist prayed and that you might increase and that I might be more like Christ today. And so Paul challenges them that there was sin in the camp. There was sin in the camp. There was no two ways about it. It happened with the children of Israel too. And there were all sorts of sacrificial systems that were brought in because God was a holy God and he called the children of Israel to be holy too. And so there were sacrificial systems put into the place that they might be able to approach a holy God. And there's sin in the camp here. It's actually reported to me. Can you imagine, as the pastor and as the leader, he's getting these details being brought to him. And he's cringing when he's hearing the stories. He'd expected maybe people outside of the church to behave, behave like that. But even the pagans didn't tolerate such behavior, we read. The issue is, that the children of God are called to holiness. They're called to holiness. They're called to live counterculture. And clearly Corinth weren't. Paul's issue is actually with the church here and not necessarily with the individual. We don't hear too much about those individuals. But the challenge here is to the church is to their boundary setting, is to the leadership, is to how they watch over and care for each other. What was the attitude of the church to this behaviour? Well, Paul was upset with their arrogance and their attitude to the way in which the church seemed to have a low view of sin and were happy to compromise. We read in verse 2 that they were proud of their liberty. Verse 6, that they were boasting. Elsewhere in chapter 4, that they were puffed up. They were relaxed. They were tolerant. Maybe that was the consequences of their lack of maturity and that they were still babes in Christ on milk rather than on the stake that Paul was wanting to give them. It's interesting. If you were to ask, if you were asked to describe Satan and his tactics, he would be described as a liar, a deceiver. And that's what Jesus described him as, a father of lies in John chapter 8. We see in the beginning in Genesis, the serpent and Eve, and we see it here at the beginning of this new community of God's. It seems Satan whispers into one ear, do unto others before they do it to you. Or maybe he whispers, 
what the eye doesn't see, the heart doesn't grieve over. Aren't you free anyway? It's those moments where we can become obsessed with an idea or a course of action that you can get carried away with and become blind to the consequences and the effects on anyone else. For others, it may be seen in seeking revenge, in getting back or not letting go of that grudge. And it eats away. And we plan and we connive to make life difficult for someone. And it turns into an obsession. Lies, deceit, hypocrisy. It's subtle and it creeps up within us. Proverbs 7 writes so descriptively, a warning against adultery. Proverbs 7 says, All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare little knowing it will cost him his life how descriptive let me remind you Satan is only after Christians you're the ones who have got away, if you like. You're the ones who have moved from darkness into the marvellous light. You're the ones who have been rescued from his grip. And so Satan will do his utmost to try and lie and deceive and cajole us back into the world of darkness, if you like. That we might be a poor representation of Christ so that his kingdom might not come. Peter's advice was be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I used to like my father-in-law when he preached about this roaring lion and he, he used to say about this roaring lion that it makes a lot of noise but Christ has pulled out all the teeth. that it might put some sense of fear into us, but he has overcome. James writes to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, and he pulls no punches when he says in, in James chapter 4 and verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And I guess Paul is saying here, where is the leadership? Where is the accountability? Where are the marks of maturity? Who's setting an example? Being Christ-like. It's an uncomfortable read, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable read, isn't it? Well, there's one or two who are uncomfortable with it. It's just like when we read 
the headlines today when a church leader or as the papers will do it emphasize the born again Christian or the evangelical Christian who has fallen from grace and I'm sure all within you goes oh it hurts it's painful for the body of Christ because we're interconnected with each other and it damages the impact on our community for the kingdom's sake what should have been their attitude to this sin within their midst well verse, verse 2 Paul, Paul says there and you're proud shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief there was no sense of mourning of sorrow, of deep anguish of the soul where there's true repentance or even the sense of mourning the loss of a fellow brother or sister of Christ in that sense. And Paul says to them as he says to us this morning, Church, is this godlike behaviour that we wish to model or overlook? And clearly God's response was no. Be sure your sins will find you out. But they may cause havoc and pain first. Why should they have mourned? Because we're called to a walk of holiness. We come to a holy God who is deeply repulsed by sin we have fallen short and we represent our God to our world so what can we what can we do what can we draw from this incident for us today well I keep emphasising it and I'll keep saying it but we're called to holiness we're called to holiness holiness is not to love Jesus and do whatever you want holiness is to love God and do what he wants I think it was John White who I believe wrote in his book uh, The Fight the image that came to mind when he thought of holiness I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of holiness but often it might be for me anyway I'd be thinking of the monk-like character you know, cup hands, here comes Cadbury's guy, having that small, pondering walk, maybe lighting the candle, maybe sleeping on the floor, maybe with, uh, with uh, camel hair clothing, with few possessions. You, you get the picture. That sense of, isn't he holy? Or isn't she holy and uh, John White describes the same sort of person um, hollowed eyes thin because they're not eating properly frequent cold baths oh dear fasting hours in prayer getting up at 4am is that your image also? it certainly doesn't sound too attractive does it? 
You see, holiness isn't about beating ourselves up or living as hermits. Paul exhorts all the followers of Jesus. Not, sorry, Peter exhorts all the followers of Jesus, not just the few. But, that, but just as he called you who is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The holiness of God can't be watered down to make us feel any better. It's because of the Lord's great love that we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. Chuck Coulson's statement on, on holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences itself in the decisions we make and things we do hour by hour, day by day. Jonathan Edwards, not the triple jumper, the Puritan from the 1700s said, I've resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That seems to be a good yardstick, doesn't it? To keep us on track. Let me say it again. I've resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. And Paul addresses the church at Corinth, but he also writes to the other churches as well in Ephesus and Colossia and, um, and Thessalonica about their attitude to sin and their call to holiness. As I say, it's not just the sexual Im- sexual behaviour but it's all the other things I've mentioned too sinful behaviour is contagious especially with babes in Christ who may not know any different so if they see what they presume to be a mature believer behaving in such a way the likelihood is the babe in Christ will think that that is okay if he's doing it or if she's doing it, it must be okay. They've been a Christian far longer than I, and so they will copy. It seems to be, I'm not making an excuse for the one that's copying, but it seems to be something that affects our behaviour when we're babes in Christ. I'm reminded of this on a light-hearted note now, because I know this isn't easy stuff. I'm reminded of how my grandson, Josiah, who's just over two, who's now at the stage where he copies everything. Everything you say and whatever you do, he just copies. So, of course, when you hear little ones speaking foul language, you know where they got it from. They're simply copying it. Here's my grandson copying me. Now unfortunately for some reasons the technology isn't allowing this this uh, clip to be the right way around. I'm really sorry about that and I don't know why. Just just pause it a minute if you can. Can you pause it? Yeah. And so you're going to have to just turn your head to one side slightly. This is me and Josiah in our front room at Christmas and we're doing a little performance for the rest of the family so we pulled the curtains and announced this little performance. And Josiah, you will see, just copies Grandpa. 
And like babes in Christ, we will copy those we assume to be mature in Christ. So there is a responsibility on us to live well for Christ. There is a responsibility that others within the body of Christ will be watching what is the right and appropriate behavior as people come alongside others. You know, so the question is, so who might we be mentoring and supporting and coaching as we come together? We don't live in isolation. We live together as the body of Christ, all interconnected. So what should have been done with this guy who had fallen from grace or this person or whoever it might have been? What should have happened? And Paul doesn't beat about the bush here. He basically is saying, you've got to deal with it. You can't sweep it under the carpet and pretend it's not happened, thinking you're keeping the peace when in actuality you're causing more problems by just trying to keep quiet because it can become contagious and infectious and that others might be copying that behaviour too. Paul describes in a simple way the effects that yeast has in a batch of dough. And, uh, you know, knowing that you put that little bit of yeast in the dough, of course it doesn't, as it were, stay there, but it has an effect on the whole loaf, or whatever you're making there. And Paul's talking about the effects of sin within the body of Christ. It doesn't, it's not just self-contained. It has the effect of affecting the rest of the body of Christ. Scripture uses yeast as a symbol of sin. And uh, what appears to be an insignificant amount of sin, it's only a little sin, can easily spread. Somebody said, soul to souls are like apples. One being rotten rots another. And he makes reference to the Passover too. And you will know that in the Exodus, and even today, our Jewish friends, when they celebrate the Passover, yeast is the symbol of sin, and they will do their utmost to clear their house of any symbol of sin. And today, they will go up and down their house, and they will sweep it out, and they will take a pile out and burn it if needs be, symbolically, if nothing else. But a symbol that the sin is being is being put out of the camp, if you like. That there is no place for it. Thank God we have the Passover lamb who was sacrificed once and for all for all our sins. For all of them. That we might know of forgiveness with him. That we might know of newness of life. And that doesn't mean to say when we've taken that step of faith we're perfect. I wish it was but it's not well it isn't with me I don't know about you and we fall and we fall and scripture says but you won't be cast down because he will lift you up and when we come to him we confess and we keep a short account before him he does keep us on the straight and narrow he's a gracious and merciful and loving God but when we allow those painful things to dwell it affects everyone and it needs dealing with 
before other hearts and lives are affected too. Jesus' death was not intended to free us to sin, but to free us from sin. So Paul isn't soft on sin in the body of Christ. He calls for an accountability. The church's job is to discipline, to provide boundaries and take care of the body of Christ. It should be getting its own house in order rather than passing judgment on our world around us. Oh, isn't it awful? As in the world outside. And we've all probably said that. And Paul's saying, we're not here to be passing judgment on them. Leave that to God. He's saying, get your own house in order. But it's so easy to pass the book and look elsewhere. And Paul's saying, take the log out of your own eye. Well, Jesus is saying, of course, take the log out of your own eye rather than the splinter that's in somebody else's as well. There is an accountability in the house of God the world may not know any difference but the church does and we read in the gospels there um, in Matthew chapter 18 where it follows the story of the lost sheep and then we have some boundaries and dis- ways of disciplining um, people in the body of Christ and uh, first you will read there in Matthew 18 that it was a direct approach that you went and approached someone and you had that quiet conversation private conversation with whoever may have offended you in whatever matter that was if they remained unrepentant then a further conversation was in the presence of two or three witnesses and if they still were unrepentant then it was brought to the body of Christ of what had been going on. I suppose naming and shaming at that point. But the whole process is that they might repent and be restored. That's the idea of accountability and some boundary setting, that they might repent and that they might be restored into the community of God. And so it's an act of grace and an act of mercy. And it's the way we do it as well. And it's our attitude and approach. So it's not me as pastor coming there with the, you know, coming to my vestry and the rulers out. But it's a longing and a yearning that they might come to that place where they hold their hands up and they admit their faults and they're restored in their walk with Christ and of course sadly some folk don't because for whatever reasons whether that's shame or whatever heart whatever it might be they don't and so part of that script is then making the wider church aware of that and then the last resort was to as it were put them out of fellowship going back to the image there of the yeast putting it putting them out of fellowship. That wasn't kicking them down the street. That was simply saying, actually, at this moment in their walk, we're not recognizing them presently as a member of this Baptist church. 
we're not recognising them in any particular role at the moment because we don't want them to be representing us at this present moment. Oh, but we long that they would get right with God and be restored into fellowship. So it's not that they're ostracised and nobody can actually have a conversation. Jesus was the friend of sinners. So they ought to be loved back in one way or the other. And you might say it's a delicate line. But there are boundaries. And just like, uh, and just like with children, and some of the challenges I understand, certainly from my wife's practice when she's been in the schools in the uh, passing as a teacher there and doing pastoral care in the school settings is sadly some of the kids don't have any boundaries and so they run right and do their own thing because nobody said whoa 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 hang on that's not how we do it here and so the word of God brings us boundaries the commandments bring us boundaries they're not meant to be like treacle and sticky and awkward and a killjoy they're there to protect us and keep us safe so that should somebody cover your donkey or your wife for that matter well that's going to be painful and hurts so don't do it so there are boundaries set that we might live well and live for his glory and that can be difficult at times because we're all human and because we'll all fall and, and let each other down but thank God with him there is forgiveness thank God for the grace of God that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve And so we provide opportunities to repent and to be restored. One of the commentators said, Don't close your eyes to offences. It's not always the kindest thing to do. It may be damaging. And the hope of excommunicating anyone, disfellowshipping them, is to restore them is to draw them near, is that they might grow and not be pushed away. Sadly, in the world that we live in, different world to the Corinthians, not, not in relation to sin, but perhaps in the multiplicity of churches that somebody could be made accountable for their poor living, shall we say, and be challenged on that but they may then choose to not come under that sense of accountability there and go down the road to somewhere else I'd like to think that the ministers communicate to each other when there are serious issues that need to be confronted one of the questions I often ask folk um, when folk are coming into membership here personally I ask anyway is particularly if they've moved from another church so is there any baggage left in the previous place have you put things right when things needed to be put right rather than walking around carrying stuff from one place to the other it's serious stuff 
it's heavy stuff. But the desire is that we might be more like Jesus. Not to embarrass anyone, but that we might be more like Jesus. So we're called to pursue holiness. Paul writes to young Timothy, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Paul uses this word of training in godliness at least eight times in his pastoral epistles. So it has to be an important concept. Godly people are God-fearing people. How do these exercises or training equate to the spiritual dimension? Here's the message translation of Romans 12. One to two. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Let me remind you, Scripture reminds us that our bodies are the temple where God dwells. Our bodies are the temple where God dwells. So the call to pursue holiness is that we might be role models for believers, not necessarily non-believers. Setting an example doesn't mean you've made it or you're perfect. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I wonder if I could say that and you could say that. So we set an example in our speech. It's the opposite of gossiping and babbling. It's speaking well of each other. It's being careful with our tongue. Setting an example in our life describes one's conduct and behavior. Not bringing the church into disrepute living a life that causes others to jealousy that they might want what you have in your life. To watch your life. To be careful with our Facebook page and our internet connect communications. To make wise choices. To seek advice and wisdom. To set examples in our love with The priority being our love for God first. He's our first love. And we love our neighbour. And it flows from that in loving our neighbour and our community. Is that obvious to all? That we're in love with God. Setting an example in our faith that we're not a shipwreck 
blown around by every wind of doctrine or whenever the kitchen sink is thrown at us we're like a mess on the floor but we trust God even when we don't understand and being trustworthy as people put their faith in us so that they can count on us too setting an example in purity opposite to those who would seek to deceive it speaks of self-control of bearing the fruit of the Spirit of keeping a short account before God it seems to me in my walk with God anyway that the nearer I draw close to God the more conscious I become of sin and so Paul's urging the church yesterday and today to pursue this walk of holiness that the Spirit of God might change us from one degree of glory to another as we come around the communion table there's an invitation from the Lord to come and as we come around this table in a few moments can I ask you some questions to ponder and reflect have we compromised too much with sin have we lost that sense of the fear of God today in the church and in our nation what if we really believed that he was all knowing all seeing ever present all powerful would that affect what we think and say and do can the world around see a difference in us do we stand out like a sore thumb like salt and light D.L. Moody said a holy life will make the deepest impression lighthouses blow no horn they just shine they just shine do you need to put your own house in order do you need to say sorry and acknowledge your failings and turn once again to God do you need to make better choices? Do you need to submit afresh to God? There's an invitation to come to the cross again to receive mercy and help in our times of need that we might be washed afresh the other images is that this, our sin might be separated as far as the east is from the west that it might be dropped into the deepest of oceans that we might be whiter than snow keep a short account before God I'm going to read David's prayer of confession 
after he let God down big style too and then we'll just use some songs of worship to reflect and you might want to use them as your prayer as we seek to pursue holiness Maybe the band just wants to move into place, please. Here's David's prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge create in me a pure heart O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain.